All right. No fun stories. We are diving right in because we get good news. It's been three plus chapters of... <laughs> There's actually something happy this week. I don't have to try to go find it. It's just right there. Paul is... Uh, I've warned you before. Paul has to establish a foundation of what is wrong in the world, which I think we can pretty much summarize as us. We're, we're what's wrong with the world. All in favor, say aye. <laughs> so now that he has laid out who the problem is, how deep the problem goes, what level it actually exists at, that we're talking about Jew, Gentile, corruption of the greatest order. Now that that is there, sin can be judged. Why? Because God must judge sin and sin is present everywhere. Um, God is right to judge sin. Everybody is way off worse than they think, even you. Now what? Well, now we can actually, with that foundation in mind, break down what the good news is. And just in case you thought Paul was being excessive, giving you almost three entire chapters of bad news, he's going to give you like nine and a half chapters of good news before he starts applying it. So rejoice. Paul, Paul's, math, Paul's math really does work out. He's like, all right, three chapters of bad news. The rest of the letter is all good news with some explanations in between. So you get really, really happy, happy. So remember part of what's going on here. Paul has not been to Rome. Paul knows some of the Christians from Rome. Paul has not established this church. But as an apostle, as the apostle sent out to the Gentiles, just like with the Colossian church, he wants to make sure that this group of people he, is, that he has not visited has a solid foundation so that one day when he does get there, he's not starting from scratch and making sure they are well built. This is one of the reasons, again, why this letter is what it is, is Paul is trying to codify what would apostolic teaching be for a church that's being established. Now, that's really good news for us because wouldn't you just love it if the apostles just laid out systematically what the apostolic doctrine and teach applications of Jesus would have been so that if you were starting a church, you could just dive right in and be good to go? I would. That's why you have Romans. So shall we dive in and actually have something happy, happy, joy, joy? Yes. All right. Verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. All right, that is two ideas that we're going to take individually. But first off, remember, we are picking up right in the middle of the train of thought. We, I can't go back and redo everything from last week, so I will just have to trust you to read on. So the initial thought, though, is that no flesh will be justified by the works of the law. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter if you are Jew or Gentile, if you have the law, if you do not have the law, the law will not stand or work as the basis of your justification. Instead of that, apart from that, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Now, we're going to call a timeout right there. How has that been done? Well, go back to something Paul has already written, Galatians 4. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Something that Peter will write later on, 1 Peter 1. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In other words, God has righteously saved his people by grace through faith in spite of themselves. In spite of themselves. There is no boasting. There is no bragging on how great you were. We've just been three chapters explaining what about you? That you're not. You're not only are you not great, you're, you're not even good, and you're probably not even decent. <laughs> Other than that, great job, everybody. But God, this is the turn for Paul. This is the turn for this letter. This is the turn for all of humanity. This is the joy that we have, is that in spite of us, no matter who us was or what us was, we have redemption in Christ. That as our trust is rightly laid upon him, that as our hopes are placed upon him, we can see the righteousness of God. Now, Paul does throw a little monkey wrench in there for you if you are a faithful Jew, just in case. So, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. If, if you were a faithful Jew, this would be like German shepherd head tilt time. So, like, you ever seen a German shepherd when, the, when a weird noise goes and they go... That would be this section right here. How, how is the righteousness of God manifested without the justification that comes from the law in the law and the prophets? See, see some of you are giving me the German shepherd head tilt because you're putting this together. If I can't be justified by the law and righteousness doesn't come there, then how does the law show me where my righteousness comes from? <laughs> John 5. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. That was Jesus talking to the crowds. Luke 24, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Saying Moses is shorthand for saying the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah, the five books of Moses, the books of the law. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. That was Jesus talking to the apostles. Acts 10. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. That was Peter talking about the Gentiles coming to faith in Christ, saying that the prophets are all pointing not to the law, not to the nation, but to the Messiah who is Jesus. Now, in other words, when in doubt, and you don't know the answer to the Sunday school question, what is it? Jesus. <laughs> That's basically what Paul is telling you right here. If you read your scripture, if you read your Old Testament law, and you come away with that and say, you know what we need? We need a checklist to tell people how they should live so that they can be righteous and receive the kingdom of God. Wrong answer. Go back to in the beginning start over again and come up with something different because that's not going to fly. If you read the prophets and say, we will ignore the law because they are showing us the heart of the true nation of Israel and how we, the people who have been cast out, shall be redeemed of God. Okay, in what? In the joy of our hearts because of our great love for God. Okay, no, no, see, that's the answer of you again. Go back to in the beginning, read all of that, then read all of your prophets and see what answer you come up with. Because if you get something other than Jesus, you got the wrong answer. This is something 
For some of you, this will be a boring rehash, but this is something we've done several times in Sunday school. One of the great laughs that I have is looking at modern Bible scholarship and seeing how they try to segment everything. Because you can't pick your Bible apart like it's, um, like it's a Lego block. Like, like, like it's, imagine if I create like a Lego race car and it's like the size of me and you go, oh, you know the best way to understand this Lego race car? The best thing to do would be to get really up close to it and take all the individual blocks off one at a time and study them. What would you then know about my Lego race car? You'd, you'd have a pile of bricks. The best way to study my Lego race car is to do what? Back up. Look at the entirety of the race car. See the colors. See the door. Look at everything in the context of what? The race car that I have built. This is what modern scholarship does to your Bible. Is It doesn't look at the Bible in its context. It looks at the Bible in individual little pieces. And it picks them apart and pulls them apart and says, Well, this part was written over here. And this part was written over there. And this part was written by this guy. Including in the same verse. This is my favorite thing that comes out of the, um, the, uh, the 19th century. Is the, um, the documentary hypothesis. That you can pull out one verse of Genesis. And say that this one verse was written by three different people. Why? Because of the words that they used. Okay. How does that work? Well, we have decided. Ah, see, there it is again. Who's the authority and the standard for everything? We have iPhones and we have brains. We're brilliant. We know all of these things. Therefore, shut up and listen. <laughs> the they ignore the context, and because of that, they can sit there and say, well, you have this law in the Old Testament, and this is like where your Pharisees come from, and they just give you this rigid structure, and because they looked at the law, and this is so demanding of God, and there is no mercy, and there is no grace. Now, if you can read Exodus and come up with like law with no mercy and grace, then you and I are reading a different Exodus. If you can read Genesis and come up with law with no mercy and grace, then you and I are reading a different Genesis. And then they read the prophets and go, well, see, there was that law salvation in the books of Moses, but over here in the prophets, you have this true heart religion. They're basically hippies. You're like sitting around in a drum circle like, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the bongos tell me so. Anyway, why, does, why do the hippies always have drums? I, I need answers to this. See, you're picturing this right now. There's a nice campfire and they're swaying back and forth and there's some dude in the bongos. See, we've gotten rid of the hippies with the bongos. If you go to a youth camp now, there's not bongos, but there's one dude with an acoustic guitar. And he just sits in the corner. Yeah. <laughs> you know I'm right. If you've ever been to a youth camp, you have met Guitar Guy. Some of you are going, stop it. I remember Guitar Guy. Some of you might have been Guitar Guy. I'm not going to tell you that's okay, but we still love you. Now, what are they doing with that, though? They're telling you there's a different salvation in the prophets. This is all about relationship without the harsh structure of religion. Now, I read my whole Bible and say, you have both. You actually have a structure of a religion that is supposed to be based upon the heart relationship of the prophets. You have the same God correcting the people as they drive into the ditches of life back and forth. Legalism, libertinism, legalism, liberty. Well, if you're driving along in the libertine ditch, do I need to come along and tell you that you need to have more emotions? I need to do what? I need to give you some structure. I need to give you some rules. Now, likewise, if you crash into the ditch of rule giving, do I need to give you more rules to get you out of the ditch? No, I need to get you actually paying attention to what's going on. I don't, imagine teaching someone how to drive, and they're like doing that thing that we all did when we learned how to drive, and you're looking right over the hood of the car because you're terrified you're going to mess something up, and you're, you get the death grip on the steering wheel. And Do I need to remind you of the 17 other things you're not paying attention to? Or do I need to get you to relax and just pay attention and look out, and it'll be okay, just feel the car. That's a little libertine, isn't it? 
but it's going to keep you out of that legalism ditch because if all you're doing is looking over the hood of the car and paying attention to all the things right here on the dashboard, where are we going to end up? <laughs> Sorry, that was on my mind the other day. They, had, they were teaching someone to drive in the parking lot out here, and it was, it was, it was bad. <laughs> it, was, it was really bad. We were, we were all but waiting. It was an automatic transmission. We were waiting for this move. <laughs> Sorry. This is what the entirety of your scripture does, is God addressing both problems of the heart, the legalistic problem, the libertine problem, and then giving you the middle way that actually points you to how to live a sanctified life in a, in a human being whose heart has been set on fire by the salvation of God. Now, I tell you all of that because this is where Paul is pointing you. The law and the prophets lead you to who? Jesus. How do I live this ordered, sanctified life? By living it in faith in Christ. How do I have this heart set on fire for the work of God? By having it redeemed by Christ. If you get to the end of your Bible and your answer was not Jesus, you got to the wrong place, start back at the beginning and read again in light of the character and nature of God, who he is, what he is accomplishing, and how he is building. How does this get me from A to B? How does this, how does this weird story about Isaac in the wilderness get me to a kingdom that God is building. How does this story about the failures of Solomon get me to a kingdom that God is building? Read your Bible in light of who God is and what he is doing. This is the beginning part of the good news for Paul. Yes, you're bad. Your foundation is built upon the understanding that you are sinful and broken and are not good, but God. And by the way, you can find this if you find it where? in scripture. Start reading your Bible. Start following and you know where you're going to land? Christ. If you got somewhere else, wrong thing, keep going. Paul will keep going. Verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Just like there was no distinction in how broken all of humanity is, the Jews are broken when they have the law, the Gentiles are broken when they don't have the law, Christ's salvation covers both groups. Jews are saved by faith in Christ. Gentiles are saved by faith in Christ. And by the way, that shouldn't have been new information to people listening to Paul, Luke 4. Jesus said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown, but I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian." That's one of the reasons they want to chuck him off a cliff there at the end of that chapter. How dare you say God will do good things for Gentiles? <sighs> we know they're evil. They're Gentiles. That's what makes them evil. See how this works? See, we're not Gentiles. We're good. They're Gentiles. They're bad. That's all you need to know. What was the lesson? See, you keep wanting the signs. You keep wanting God to only work. God is saving which people? His people. Where are his people going to be found? You will be a blessing on the, what part of the earth, Abraham? The whole earth. See, Paul isn't pulling this out of thin air. Paul is giving you an application based on what Jesus actually taught, what Jesus actually did. Romans 2, again, if you need to rewind one whole chapter. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. In other words, what is Israel? What does it mean to say, I am a Jew? What are you claiming? See, 
If you get this wrong and you look at things from a purely human perspective, from a worldly perspective, your answer would be, well, I'm a descendant of Abraham. I live in a promised land and we have the law and the prophets and the history and that's who we are. No, 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 no. That's not Israel. Israel is the people of God. Do the people of God sometimes include rotten people who have rejected him? Yes. I will leave for myself 7,000 in Israel, those who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There's always a faithful remnant. There's always a group that God is still redeeming and working along. What Paul is getting on in chapter 2, what he got along in Galatians 3, what he's dealing with even here very briefly is Roman church is predominantly at this point a Gentile church. The Claudius has expelled the Jews from Rome. They've gone from a mixed body to a predominantly Gentile body. They're going to end up being a mixed body again, and then very, very quickly, they're going to be a predominantly Gentile body. What does that leave them with? It leaves them with a brokenness because they don't have the connection to the history. They don't have necessarily the best understanding of the law and the prophets. That's one of the reasons Paul is giving them this. And they don't have that grounding in what it means to be the people of God from every tribe, tongue, nation. That grounding has to be given because when you forget that, you start to give yourself pride in the gospel. We did so much of that last week and the week before that. We're not doing that again, but the reminder should be that God is building a kingdom that doesn't care who you are and where you come from. Because let's remember, regardless of who you are and regardless of where you come from, what do we know about you from chapters one through three? You're bad. (laughs) So where you came from and who you were is irrelevant. What matters now is Why are you standing in Christ? And are you standing in Christ? If the answer to that is, yes, I am, then good. All of that has been undone. And the righteousness that you require is found in Christ. Not in an ethnic relationship, not in a parental relationship, but in a faith relationship. Why? Verse 23. For all, and by the way, if you haven't noticed, we're still in one sentence. This is one of those Paul specials here. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all God's people said, duh. We kind of covered that in all of chapter 1, most of chapter 2, and most of chapter 3. So we've got that. We don't have to go over all of that. In order to miss that point, you would have had to start reading this letter at verse 21 of chapter 3. We have done no such thing. I have the YouTube videos to prove it, so you can go back and catch up if you missed anything. So we'll go to verse 24. Being justified, so all fall short of the glory of God, but are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So, catch this, because of the work of Christ, you are not guilty. This is a legal definition. So, Colossians 2 explains it. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. Having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So, you were guilty. Christ's death has taken your guilt upon himself. And because a penalty has now been paid, you bear no guilt. Good job. Congratulations. See, I jokingly say that to you because what did you actually accomplish in that? Nothing. And I'm so tempted to, to what's the, the, oh shoot, the, the Wheel of Fish game from that stupid Weird Al movie. What's in the box? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> Sorry. Random thoughts. I haven't seen that movie in years. <laughs> but these are the things that stream through my head on a daily basis. Be so glad you do not have my brain. 
you have accomplished nothing in this, and yet you are not guilty. This is part of the good news. These are the things, Christian, when we talk about reminding yourself of who you are in Christ, these are the things that you should be reminded of, that you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but you are justified as a gift by the grace of God through the redemption which is found in Christ. And by the way, this is not only Paul's gospel. This is the work that Christ has taught, what the apostles taught. First Peter chapter 2. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, that's Jesus, who was not who, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. You are not guilty because of what Christ has accomplished. This is one of those foundational ideas for understanding the rest of Romans. So we're up to three now, right? So if you're making notes in your Bible or on your bulletin somewhere, you must remember what about humanity? They are no good. (laughs) They are no good and there is no good to be found in them. Um, Who runs things? This is one of your other foundations for the book of Romans. Who runs things? God does, not you. Not Rome, not the nations, God runs things. And because you are no good and God runs things, those who are saved are saved by the gracious gift and accomplishment of God. This is how salvation gets built out in Paul's theology. This is how you think through things orderly. These are the reminders that you get as you go through. Verse 25, we finally finish a sentence. Go team. So all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. The glory the God. There you go. The glory. We'll just summarize the glory of God. That can't be blasphemous at all, could it? They are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption in Christ Jesus, verse 25, whom God publicly, I'm sorry, displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Don't you love it when Paul gives us the big words? And I know I define this every time we read it. I'm going to do it again, just because I know you guys always remember everything that I say. So propitiation, to turn away wrath. So, um, oh, how does that, how's the song go? Ah. No, never mind. It's, it was there for a second, and I grabbed like two words, and then it was gone. And since I couldn't get to tune, I won't sing because that would just be bad. Like, not, not that my singing is ever good, but anyway. So, displays Christ. God displays Christ publicly as a propitiation in his blood through, through faith. So, Jesus' death actually accomplishes something. It's not just the bearing of the penalty, but Jesus's actual death is part of the accomplishment, which again, should not have been new information. And by the way, I know there's a whole lot more of verse 25 we're getting to there. Don't, don't panic on me. Should not have been new information for anyone reading their Bible, which by the way, time out real fast. It's 54, 55, 56 AD when Paul is writing the book of Romans. When I say if the Romans are reading their Bible, what do I mean? Yo, that's the Romans. But when I say they're reading their Bible, what do I mean? The law, the prophets, and the writings. They're reading what we would be calling the Old Testament. I mean, by by mid-50s AD, you're talking about best-case scenario. James has been written, Galatians has been written, um, the Corinthian letters, the Thessalonian letters have been written, Matthew. The odds that Matthew's gospel has made it to Rome by the mid-50s? 
very, very small. It's probably spreading around Jerusalem and Judea in that area at this time period. It'll make its way to Rome, but probably not for several years. So when Paul's talking about what's being in the law and the prophets, that would be scripture to them. When I talk about this is not new information if you've read your Bible, this is Old Testament stuff, and I can prove it too. Got to get back around though. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the plunder with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. It's Isaiah 53. You should read Isaiah 53 on a regular basis. It's one of those rare passages of the Old Testament that if you don't know where it came from, you would swear it was something Paul wrote in one of those letters you never read. It's like, that's, that's one of those obscure ones, like in the middle of 2 Corinthians somewhere. Like, nobody, nobody knows, nobody quotes anything from 2 Corinthians ever, so. <laughs> and again, this is the building out of theology. This should not have been a shock what Christ was doing. When Christ is talking about the law and the prophets, when Christ is talking about the testimony of God in his word, he's talking about the Old Testament. The work was according to the plan laid down all the way back, well, like the before the beginning. Because <laughs> I can't even say in the beginning because there's a, there's a whole theological debate about exactly when that occurs. But I don't think you guys want to have a lapsarian conversation this morning, do you? <laughs> Come on. So are you, are you super or in for lapsarian? Come on, I need to know. No. That's, this is one of those things that we argue about, mainly Presbyterians, but you know, we will argue about anything. So why do you care about this? Because God has displayed Christ and has had his wrath turned away, why does that work for Jesus? 1 Timothy 2 helps you out. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. And when I say it accomplishes something, go back to a letter that Paul has already written, 1 Corinthians 1. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, the verse break is there. It shouldn't be. Well, the verse break is not there because the verse break should be on the actual sentence break. So we're going to take the sentence break. So because Christ has been displayed, because he has turned the wrath away, because he has accomplished this by the command of God so that God's grace and mercy may be poured out, you get the rest of verse 25. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. And you'll notice why I said the verse break is bad because what, what ends up, what is that after committed? That's not the end of the sentence. Whoever did the verses in this section of this chapter should be drug out into the street and beaten with clubs. They just, they got this whole section wrong. And there's been so much, just move 25 right to before that this, and then this would have been so much better. But anyway, I'm not upset or anything. <laughs> so we'll continue on with this idea in, in the rest of the verse in just a second. So before we do that, though, God's righteousness is demonstrated because in his forbearance, he has passed over the sins previously committed. That's not new information again from your Bible, Psalm 78. But God, being compassionate, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. And often he restrained his anger and did not arouse all his wrath. Thus he remembered that they were nothing but flesh, a wind that passes and does not return. 
I always talk about the patience of God. How can you find the patience of God? Read your Old Testament. Because if you were God and you were dealing with those people, yes, I am giving them a those people. They have been themed. If you were dealing with those people in that time, you would have smited them 72 times before lunch. You know it and I know it because you'd have been sitting there going, I can't even with these people. What in the world? You're going to be a blessing. Go to the land. Dwell there. Why are you in Egypt? Like, seriously? Well, I was afraid of the Pharaoh. What part of go to the land and you're going to be a blessing would tell you to go to Egypt and be afraid of Pharaoh? Get your butt back to the land where you belong. (laughs) Now tell your kids. Okay, fine. I'll tell your kids. I will give you this land. There will be a blessing. I was afraid of Shechem. (laughs) This would be you and I if we were God. And yet, what do we keep seeing? Passing over with the patriarchs, passing over their sins in Exodus, passing over the sins during the time of Judges, passing over the sins during the kingdom years, sending prophets who they ignored, sending other prophets who they killed, sending them good kings who they ignored, sending them bad kings who they all but worshipped. Oh my goodness, people. Giving them a sacrificial system so that they could corrupt it at every chance that they got. Never forget, like, people today, like, as, let, let me ask it this way. Do you think we're worse now than, they, than we were like 4,000 years ago? <laughs> See, some of you are like, I could make an argument. See, most churches, if you said, you know what we're going to do? We're, we're going to open up like one of those gaming rooms like they have at all the gas stations now and just like put it in the back corner. That would be fine, right? Even though like you're, you're imagining like even the bad churches that you wouldn't go to, you'd be like, even they're going to say no to that one. Remember that some of the kings opened up a brothel at the temple. Like not next to the temple, not across the street from the temple, in the temple. And they were like, it'll be fine. What could go wrong? This is a good plan. See, you're looking at this going, wait, what? And God, like we joke now, like when people say something, we're like, I'm going to move over so the lightning strike just gets you. Like, where was the lightning strike? I want the smiting then in that. When we see the patience of God, the passing over of sins previously committed, we're not just talking about, I was trying really hard and I just messed up. (laughs) We're talking about ignoring blatant, brazen, shaking of fist and rejection of all that God was and all that he stood for. That's the patience of God. Which, by the way, Christian, is part of the reason why you're supposed to have patience because you're supposed to be emulating the work of Christ and the life of Christ in your life. So work on patience. Just don't ever pray for patience because you know how you get more patience, right? You have to be annoyed and demonstrate patience. So when you pray for more patience, just know you are praying for God to send people to annoy you. You have been warned. You have been warned. Let's continue this sentence in verse 26. So this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's a lot. Okay. That could be like its own Sunday, but I'm not going to do that to you guys because I hate ripping verses out of context. So this is big though. So Jesus satisfies the wrath of God and he upholds God's justice. Why does this have to be the case, first of all? Well, one, God is the just judge. So God has passed over in forbearance their sins. Does that mean God will continue to do that forever? No. So let me put it this way. Let's say 
Um, you know, yeah, let's say you're just flying along Mulford. So, you know, Mulford's 45 from pillar to post, right? But let's be honest. Once you get across Spring Creek, nobody's going 45 on Mulford until you get to Riverside again. You know it and I know it. And once you get across State Street and you get past that, um, the Japanese place, no one's going 45 until you get to Riverside. If you don't believe me, I used to make that commute every day. You make the turn from Spring Creek onto Mulford, and you go by the uh, two mega churches there, and it's like a race to State Street. Just straight shot. Everybody's got, I'm going 16. People are passing me. <laughs> Some of you are going, yeah, I've seen that. Now, if I get pulled one day there, and I get a warning, do I think that's a bad cop? No, because who did he give a warning to? Me! I like when you give me the warning. Okay, you know what? Now, what am I going to do? I'm going to be more careful looking around. Because <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> and I'm going to slow down a little bit for a while. But let's be honest, what's going to happen over time? Yeah. Now, what happens? Now, I would not call that cop a bad cop for giving me a warning. But what happens if I find out he's given 500 people a warning every day for the last five years? Okay, we have to now start saying what about this guy? This is a bad officer. We, you need to do what at some point? Somebody should have a ticket. So God has overlooked their sin. In his mercy and grace and forbearance, he has passed over those sins previously committed. How long can that, can that go on for eternity and us continue to say that God is the just judge of all the earth? No. So something has to be done. This is the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time. This is the justice of God, is that God must pour out his wrath upon sin. Yes, someone must be smited. And let's be honest, Christian, you want some smiting every once in a while. You want sin dealt with, just not in me. <laughs> like, I want the cop to give me the warning, not everybody else. Give them tickets, me warnings. This is, this is how my justice system works. Now, again, is that a good justice system? No, it's a terrible justice system. So God has to pour out his wrath on all sin. But that means my sin too. Yes, which is why Christ will bear the wrath. Christ will propitiate and turn away the wrath from you by bringing it where? Upon himself. This is one of the reasons why the, um, the virgin birth is one of those cardinal doctrines that you can't get rid of. Jesus has to actually represent you. If he's not a human being, tempted in all ways as we are and yet without sin, can he represent you? This is why people go, well, is there any hope for Satan? No, because there's no angelic Messiah. He has no representative before the throne. He has no one to bear the wrath for his sins. Now, if God wants to go down that road, I'm not going to argue with him. But until he does, the answer is no. You have to have someone who represents both parties in this exchange. You have to have God and man. This is one of the reasons why the virgin birth is so important. You have to actually have a human being who is God to represent the Father and to actually represent us so that the wrath poured out is poured out against the sins of a humanity that has been committed. Excuse me, my brain is stopping for a second. Mainly because my throat does not want to cooperate. Come on. So, he, is dem he has displayed Christ publicly because he has passed over sin so that, and I'm summarizing here, we're skipping along to you get the main thrust here, so that he would be just. So God is now just. He has poured out wrath upon sin by pouring it out in Christ and the justifier of the one who has faith. What are the terms for this work to be applied to you? So start simple, stuff you remember from last time, even though it's been a while. What are your terms in your negotiation? What are God's terms in your negotiations with him? 
The battle lines have been assembled. What are the terms for peace? Surrender. I give up. The one who has faith in Jesus. You can't accomplish. This is one of the reasons why Paul has given such explanation to the law not being a redeemer up until this point and why he's going to end up coming back to this point later on and why Paul was so angry when you read Galatians because you can't read Galatians and not go, I think Paul's a little upset with these people. (laughs) I think he's slightly perturbed. (laughs) Good word. Why? Because to say that the law provides me with righteousness is to bring something to the negotiations with God. Who do you think you are? God's terms are surrender. My terms are to have faith. And always remember, the world forces its definition of faith upon you. Your faith is not that. Your faith is not that God. Your faith is in God. So you don't have a faith that God is there. You have a faith in God who has done something. So the world looks at you because you're a religious person. You have faith. You believe that God is real. That's not what faith means, dude. You, Romans, Romans 1, you know that God is real. We know that God is real. We know that he is there, that he is created, that we have sinned. We know, we, we know that. Our faith is not in that aspect of it. Our faith is in that what he has told us he has accomplished in the work of Christ is good and is actually accomplished. Because let's be honest. If I just went with you and the great arbiter of all human decisions, do you feel like your sin is overcome most days? Because let's be honest, what's the great determining factor for most people? How we feel. (laughs) This is why we have to train ourselves against that. Do you feel like most random Tuesdays your sin is overcome? And the answer is no. I feel like I'm wallowing in it and warring against it most often. Exactly. That's That's why you have faith. Because if you listen to you, you would be lost. You would be doomed because you don't feel like it. You have to have faith that what God has told you which goes in opposition to how you feel most days, is right and true. And I know I'm asking a lot for most people. And I know that God is asking a lot in faith. This is why we're talking about faith the size of a mustard seed. I can't even get my hands. Because this is where we are most days. This is what our hope must be, is that I don't feel it. I don't feel like it, but God has declared it. And what God has said is true, despite what I might believe on a given day. That's where my faith is. That's how he is the justifier of the one who has faith because Christ has actually taken wrath because Christ has turned away the penalty that was due to me and he has granted me righteousness by faith, not because of what I have accomplished, but because of what he has accomplished. And that is where I must rest. In spite of three chapters of knowing how broken I am, in spite of three chapters of knowing how I have failed, I can rest in the fact that it is Christ who has granted me righteousness and that as I trust in him and as I believe on the promises and as I believe that what he has done is good then I have righteousness I have forgiveness and I have a place in the people of God because of who he has now made me in Christ that's why this is so important you see why I said we could like try to stretch this out but then we'd all be lost now as a corollary This is also why we do what we do in life. This is why your worship is centered where it is. This is why you'll always hear me say, it's in Christ's name that we pray. This is why my pointing to you is always to Jesus, because you shouldn't be worshiping anyone or anything else who can't do this. (laughs) I mean, and that's like, that's on the list of the dumb things I have to say on a regular basis, but let's be honest. What do we do? (laughs) 
Like, ooh, shiny object. Yeah, well, no, 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 sorry, no, no shiny object, no shiny object. First Peter again. If you would, Father, if you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The one who is just redeems us by his work, by his grace, as we trust in him despite us, because of who he is and what he has done. This is why your worship is where it is, because no one else can do this, no one else can offer this, no one else can accomplish this, and anything else you put into that place, congratulations, you found your idol, you know, kill it with fire the whole nine yards, you get to do all of that. This, from here on in, is the biggest part of the foundation that has to be built up. This is the thing that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, and yet, it is the thing that we forget more often in how we think and how we live. We are constantly trying to add this or accomplish that and forgetting what the foundation is. Or let's, let me summarize Paul really well in something we've done a thousand times. Who are you and why are you? This is what you should be doing on a regular basis, is reminding yourself of what Christ has accomplished and what that means for you in this world. And realize that doesn't, mean like a beating, okay? Which is typically how we misuse this. I do it, you do it, I know it, it's okay. Where we go, what Jesus has done means that I should be better at this. Stop. You're already on the wrong track. You're already in the wrong track. You're like, I shouldn't have done that. No, no, no. I'm not arguing that you shouldn't have. I'm agreeing with you. You shouldn't have done that. But that's not the point. That's not the point that I'm getting across. Because of this, because it is Christ's accomplishment, his mercy, his grace, grace, and you're trusting in his accomplishment, what does that mean for you? That means that I am good. That means that I am righteous. That means that I am clean before the king of the universe and that I have a place in his throne and I can rejoice in this world despite the tribulations, despite the difficulties, in spite of myself and my sins, I can rejoice in all that he has done and all that he has given for me. Now, does that mean I go, well, that doesn't mean what I do. No, no, Romans 6 is still there and we're going to get to it. But it does mean that I don't have to kill myself for it. Jesus has already died and been resurrected. You can't repeat that trick, okay? Don't try. You can't murder you. What it means is that you have joy in the midst of your war against sin. You have joy in the realization that it has been accomplished and that you are good in spite of this now. And by the way, reminding yourself of that on a regular basis. I feel like I'm doing excessive talking with my hands today, and I apologize for that. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. That's just, that's worse. In spite of all that we are and all that we do, This is who we are in him, that we are righteous and that we are good and that he has brought us and he has promised us. When we remember that, sin starts to fall away. How does does the song that I I never like singing because it's from that section of the hymnal go? Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Mm-hmm. You can hear the organ now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so it's the one section of the hymnal that drives me crazy because after a while it's like I can't handle this emotional manipulation any longer. But anyway, 
Sorry. You have to be careful with music. This is a complete tangent real fast, but there is something about music for the human heart, mind, and soul. It does something to you. If you don't believe me, just start flipping through channels of songs you haven't listened to in 40 years, and you play words come back, places come back. It does something. You have to be careful with it. Don't attach weird memories to songs because you're stuck with those until the end of time. I'm telling you, the end of time. <laughs> and God's going to leave those in your brain just because you're you. <laughs> So that's why I joke about the sections of the hymnal because there's those, there's that whole little section list of songs that we only use at the very end, you know, with every head bow, every every eye closed and every head bowed. <laughs> that's why all those Baptist churches are built in the, on that slant, you know, it makes it easier once you get started. <laughs> you think I'm kidding? People thought about that. So, but the truth remains: you undo the sin not by going, "I'm going to kill it," "I'm going to kill it," "I'm going to kill it." Wrong power, wrong hope, by remembering that Christ has killed it. I am dead to this. I am alive in Christ, and I walk in that direction now. And the draw is uncut. The desire is undone. And the hope and pull of righteousness is strengthened and done. And then that, the Holy Spirit goes from you know dragging your lifeless corpse along to actually walking again. So, because of that, verse 27, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Well, yeah, because boasting would prove what about you? If you're proud of your salvation, who do you think accomplished it more than likely? Yeah, you. Genesis 15, how is Abraham saved? Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. How did Habakkuk apply that? As for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. So if it's excluded, how? By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. See, boasting is undone because you are saved by grace through faith. Not because we've given you a law that says, stop being prideful and stop boasting in yourselves. No, but because you recognize who you are and how you got there. Your boasting is undone because you recognize it as the accomplishment of Christ. This is um, Paul's great conclusion in Philippians 3. What's Paul going to boast in? What's he going to hope in? He's going to hope in Christ. His boasting to the Corinthians is going to be in what? his weaknesses, so that Christ will be exalted. This is where the hope is. This is what the joy is. Because in Christ, I now know who I am, and I know what I am. 1 Corinthians 1. Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world, that's me, to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world, that's me also, to shame the things which are strong, the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. This is why I always warn you against worldly philosophy. We've spent like the last 40 years in Western Christianity trying to do what? No, no, no. We're real scientists too. We're real thinkers too. Look at the books. Look at the science that we've done. Accept us. Listen to us. Aren't we smart? You believe in God. You're an idiot. Go away. Oh, man. They were going to tell us that anyway. You can spend the rest of your life trying to prove how brilliant you are. The minute you start talking about Jesus, they're going to say, what about you? You're a fool. Get out. So you know what you might as well just start with? <laughs> just start with Jesus. He's the one with the power who actually changes the hearts and minds of men. You might as well start there. You're going to end up there anyway. They're going to think the same of you either way. What was the point of the rest of the argument? Own it. Live it. Rejoice. 
in this world, you'll have trouble. Rejoice, I've overcome the world. That was the warning, right? That was the hope. That was the comfort. It's just dive in, feet first. Don't pull the punches. Don't try to couch it. Don't try to hide it. No sneaking the gospel in under the cover of darkness. Walk it in on the banner. We don't do that anymore. Remember, see, I, I, I spent just enough time into, remember the banners in, in old Baptist churches, right? You, you break them out at Easter and they had the little belt thing so you could carry them. And you're like, yeah! <laughs> That's how you should be with your Christianness. Is that even a word? If it's not, it is now. I've decided. So it is written, so it shall be done. <laughs> but this is how it, you should live it. Love who you are in Christ, because that is who Christ has made you up until this point. And love who you're going to be in Christ 10 years from now, because that's who Christ will make you. And rejoice in the accomplishment that he has done, and wear it on your sleeve, and proclaim it from the housetops, because anything else is already foolishness, and they're going to reject it anyway. And that's kind of part of the point, is that anything else is you trying to use their philosophy to get them to believe your philosophy. It's like, no, no, no. don't pay attention to my foundations. Let's, let's use your foundations and see if we can build my foundations. Well, that doesn't make any sense. No, our foundations are simple. You're broken. Yes, you. Yes, even you. You're broken in every possible way conceivable. God's going to judge your brokenness, but Christ. There we go. Simple, basic. Oh, I can't believe you would say such a thing. I can. This is who we are. This is how we function. 28. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Well, because what other way could there possibly be? There's nothing else there. Something we read in Sunday school this morning. This was Jesus' left hook to the entirety of the crowd listening to him. I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. This was the, the kickoff to the, the summation of the law, Luke 10. A lawyer, that's part of the friends of the scribes and the Pharisees, stood up to test him saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Again, what's in the box? Nothing. Instead, Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Easy, simple. See, simple. I got this. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Oops. <laughs> what I always love about these guys is you read that and go, yes, yes. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And his answer is always, okay, just real quick. Who's my neighbor? Just, just so I can make sure like I know... Because, I mean, I got this. I can love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I will love my neighbor as myself. As soon as you define neighbor. That's a lawyer if there ever was one right there, isn't there? Like, we got it. Just define neighbor and we're good. Take notes, kids. <laughs> See, what was the whole point? How are you doing on loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? How are you doing on loving your, loving your neighbor as yourself? This is why that standard of the law is merciless. It was never meant to be mercy. It was already given to a people who had experienced mercy. When, when did they experience mercy before the law? Oh, I don't know. How about this useless enslaved people in Egypt who can't get themselves, who couldn't box their way out of a wet paper bag and redeem themselves? What has God done? Just, you know, wiped out the greatest power known to human, human history up until that point, utterly and completely, undoing what they thought of the world and power, and how the world functioned, and then pulled them out and fed them with bread from heaven, and guided them, and then given them all of these signs and wonders, and then provided them with a law so they would know what? How do we serve this great God? 
We didn't even know who he was five minutes ago, but now that we've seen, we know. That was the point. You've already been shown mercy. You don't turn the law into mercy. That's how you get brokenness. That's how you get everything. Instead of the mercilessness of the law, Christian, you've been given what? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. God didn't give a merciless standard. He gave mercy. He gave grace to his people, regardless of who they were, regardless of where they were. And just in case you missed that point, Paul circles back, verse 29. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Of course he is. Again, go back. Is God the God of everyone? Yes. Generally, Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. But God is the God of the Gentiles specifically as well. Galatians 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free man, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Acts 10. This was a lesson that had to be retaught to the apostles. Uh, Peter declaring, I understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. In other words, God is not just the God of the Jews. He is the God of his people. Continue on with the sentence, verse 30. Since indeed, God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. See, not two gods, not two salvations, not two hopes, not like this weird salvation in the law, and then there's another salvation in the prophets, and then there's a salvation in Jesus. No, one. I've told you this one before. You read your Bible, how many stories? One. You're just figuring out the different parts of the one story. And that one story is about who? When you don't know what to say, just say, there you go. That one God has one salvation and one mediator. Acts 4, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And Jesus himself told you one verse you probably all have memorized. What did Jesus tell the disciples in the upper room? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. One salvation. And then it finishes up. A new sentence, yay, verse 31. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Now, that's really where it's going to get interesting. How? How do we establish the law? Well, Paul's going to build on this for the next few chapters and explain to it, but it's an idea you're going to have to keep in the back of your mind. Remember from last week, though, what's one of the main purposes of the law? 1 Timothy chapter 1. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, or mothers, or murderers, immoral men, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And as 1 Corinthians 6 would tell you, Such were some of you. 
This is who the law was for. And I always remember, I always love when Paul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, tells people that. Remember what nation God gave the law to? <laughs> like, remember, it's like the, the, the rule about like shampoo bottles. Why does your shampoo bottle tell you not to drink it? Because someone somewhere did what? They drank the shampoo. And you were like, I didn't need to be told that to drink the shampoo. Yeah, but someone needed to be told not to drink the shampoo. Hence, the shampoo tells you don't drink it. That's why it tells you not to use your, you know, your uh, Clorox bleach as eye drops. Because somebody somewhere did what? Uh-huh, same thing. So this nation of Israel that God has made, that he has pulled out of Egypt, that he has given bread from heaven, he has parted the Red Sea, that he has killed the Egyptians for, that he has now brought to his holy mountain, tells them what? Don't kill each other. Stop stealing from each other. Stop trying to sleep with your neighbor's wife. That's bad. Don't lie to each other. Why do we have to be told this sort of thing? Because, because what are we doing as humanity? That. This is what the law does. Is It not only shows you how you can be sanctified, but it tells you what about you. Oh, yeah. I probably need to be reminded not to do that sort of thing. Oops. Because let's be honest. Moses, the great deliverer, when he thought nobody was looking, what did he do with the Egyptian? Killed him, and he did such a wonderful job that he paraded the body through the streets so everyone would know, right? No, go buried in the desert and hide it. Nobody can see what I'm doing. This is humanity. This is us. Luckily for us, though, Christ is who he is. 1 Timothy 1 again. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Or as he has previously told the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't have to worry about that nature. I don't have to sit here and go, don't murder, don't murder, don't murder. Like, you drive around town and be like, don't smash people with my car, that would be bad. Don't smash people with my car, that would be bad. Why don't you? That's well, not why you do it, because... There are like 18 other things in your brain that you're thinking about other than don't smash people with my car. I mean, this is how your sanctification should go in Christ. It's not don't murder, don't covet, don't lie, don't steal. It's look upon Christ, trust in him, rejoice in his accomplishments and realize who I am righteous in him. That the law is not my enemy, but the righteousness of God is revealed. The sin of me is revealed. And those two things meet up in Christ. And my sin is undone, and his righteousness is presented, and I am clean, and I am whole. And now I am not afraid, because there's no power in death, and there is no power in sin, because Christ has overcome, and he has empowered me to walk. This is the joy, and this is why Paul doesn't have to freak out about what laws do you need. Are you Jew? Are you Gentile? Do you have Jesus? Because if you have Jesus, then all of the rest of this gets lined up and put in its right perspective. And that's the joy that we have to have, Christian, because that's the, that's the reality of our lives as we live, is who are you, why are you, how are you trusting, how are you walking, what are you looking towards, what are you looking into day in and day out. And the cure is not, stop doing that. The cure is, focus upon Christ. Focus upon his mercy. Focus upon his grace. Focus upon his accomplishment, and walk in the light of who you are in him. Let's pray.